This is the truth of the matter. When an armed British force sailed into Manila Bay and commenced the invasion on a rainy night of September 1762, Manila's fortifications would not have stood up to any sustained siege. The city walls were falling apart. The smaller palisades were already in ruins. The bastions that jutted out from the walls were so badly positioned that there was no coherent line of defense. Inside, the paving stones of the boulevards were so worn down that it was difficult to move artillery. Even parts of Fort Santiago, their primary garrison, lacked the necessary level spaces to mount and fire guns. Archbishop Manuel Rojo, who at the time was acting governor general, wrote in his journal, Almost everything was useless. For 381 years, the islands of the Philippines were occupied by conquistadors, missionaries, merchants, soldiers, spies, and colonizers of every stripe. That's 381 years of history, and we're here to talk about the stories lost in between the cracks of the centuries. This is Occupy Pilipinas Episode 2, Manila Has Been Breached. The Archbishop was an administrator who was good with the account books but, quote-unquote, did not understand anything of military affairs, as French astronomer and historian Hilam Lajanti noted. As acting governor-general, Rojo's authority was tenuous. He often conceded decisions to his council, composed on one side of the tradesmen and the bureaucrats, and on the other by the clergy. He also had to deal naturally with the military, which was under command of Brigadier General Marquis de Villa Medina. These soldiers were often shut out from important meetings. Behind Rojo's back, they grumbled about his lack of decisiveness. If Arandia were living, some of them would mutter, referring to the previous Governor General, a Spanish knight. But he was dead, and they only had Rojo to lead them. To break the British position, the Spaniards assembled 50 musketmen as well as some militia volunteers. Supporting this force were two small four-pounder guns and 800 Filipinos armed with spears and bows. Commanding the counterattack was Cesar Fayette, a French chevalier under Spanish service. Bringing the troops out of the city walls under cover of darkness, Fayette's troops assembled at Bagumbayan and raked the British right flank with gunfire. Lajanti would later make fun of this counterattack. He wrote, How could one flatter himself with at most 60 men? For I do not take any account of the 800 Indians and two small cannons. That he could give any trouble to 6,000 men of good troops, withdrawn into two or three citadels. Against Fayette's attack, the British assembled a group of sepoys, supported by three pickets of men from the 79th Regiment and about a hundred sailors. Sharp gunfire was exchanged all night before Fayette was driven off, retreating from the church of San Juan in Bagumbayan 
which was about 200 yards away from the British-occupied Santiago Church. In Fayette's flight, his troops left behind one of their cannons. From his headquarters in Ermita, Draper decided that the Church of Santiago would be the point from which they would launch their main assault. He saw that the top of Santiago's bell tower in particular would be the perfect vantage point to watch Intramuros. His soldiers began digging breastworks and defensive trenches on the church grounds and around the surrounding houses. On the open field facing the walls, they also began filling their gabions, which were these large baskets made from rattan that they had prepared at sea during the journey to Manila. So they loaded those up with dirt and rocks and laid great fascines of wood on top of them. Great mounds were also dug up to anchor the cannons. All of these earthworks would protect the artillery when they began their final assault. To help them bring supplies from the beach to the front lines, the British attempted to convince some Filipinos to defect, or at least lend horses or oxen. But none joined them. The native civilians mistrusted the invaders. The few soldiers who wandered out of their quarters were killed by the locals. As one of their main storeships, the South Sea Castle, was separated from the main fleet before they arrived, the troops didn't have enough digging tools. They struggled against the wet earth as they dug their fortifications. Admiral Cornish ordered his men aboard the ships to construct makeshift spades and pickaxes, while he scanned the horizon repeatedly, waiting for the South Sea Castle to sail into Manila Bay. From their stations atop the Intramuros walls, the Spanish defenders saw a white flag go up. The British were sending an emissary to the city. As before, Brigadier General William Draper hid his threats under tones of mock regret. In his letter to Archbishop Rojo, he explained the unfortunate situation he had with his troops. He wrote, I have a multitude of most fierce people who are unacquainted with the more humane parts of war. It will not be in my power to restrain them should you give us any more trouble. The implication couldn't be more clear. If the defenders didn't lay down their arms, the pillage would be very severe. Archbishop Rojo thought that they should surrender, but as always, he was overruled. The war would continue. In his reply to Draper, Rojo wrote, I consider my forces to be in no way inferior to your excellencies, nor the defenses and defenders of this capital to the attackers I see arrayed before it. When Draper received the Spaniard's answer, he scoffed. He remarked in his journal, their answer was much more spirited than their conduct had been. The British bombardment began anew. Huge 18-pound cannonballs slammed into the buildings inside Intramuros. The defenders salvaged what they could, hoisted them into their own mortars, and volleyed them back to the English lines. Meanwhile, aboard the Norfolk, Antonio Tagle, the archbishop's nephew who was now a British prisoner, watched as another white flag went up, this time from the Spanish lines. By that time, the archbishop had heard about Tagle and the San Gertrudis. 
possibly from Sotomayor, who if you remember, had escaped the British capture of the small galley. Rojo sent messengers secretly to the galleon Filipino, which was docked in Samar, warning the crew to stay away from Manila and find another port to land on. To avoid the British fleet, the silver would have to be transported by land. Now, it was time to parley with the British for the release of his nephew. Both Draper and Admiral Cornish agreed to a day's ceasefire and to release Tagle the next morning. He was useless to them anyway. Admiral Cornish had already ordered his two fastest ships, the Panther and the Argo, to chase down the Filipino. If they managed to capture the galleon, the commanders agreed that the plunder would be divided equally between the sea and the land forces. Both sides took advantage of the September 26th truce to shore up their forces. In Manila, reinforcements began to arrive from the provinces, including 600 men from Bulacan, plus around 110 men that were summoned from Maykawayan and Bokawe. Most feared, though, were the 2,000 or so troops that had marched from Pampanga. At the time, the province was known for having the toughest fighters. Even Draper called them a fierce and barbarous people. Around 3,000 Indios were mustered to reinforce the Spanish defense. Most of them were armed with bows and arrows, except for 33 Tagalogs who carried muskets. Meanwhile, the British landed more artillery. Close to midnight, as their new cannons were moved into position, the British began shelling Manila again. When Tagle disembarked from a British boat the following morning, he was dressed all in black. A small group of British soldiers, commanded by Lieutenant Fryer, escorted him to Intramuros, carrying a flag of truce, while a drummer beat out a shamad, an insistent beat that signaled temporary ceasefire. Seeing the white flag, the Spanish halted their bombardment. The British artillery, however, did not. Inside the ravelin gate of the Puerto Real, a large contingent of native and mestizo troops, sick of cowering under the constant barrage of cannonballs, suddenly charged the British trenches. It was a spontaneous, desperate action, and in his journal, Rojo claimed that they had acted without orders. Despite their lack of guns, the soldiers broke through Bagumbayan and captured a bakery and several houses that had been occupied by advanced scouts. The British soldiers who didn't flee were impaled or wounded on Filipino spears. The attackers fell on Tagle's party. They surrounded Lieutenant Fryer, cutting him down brutally. One of Fryer's assistants leapt forward to try and save the lieutenant, but he was seized and his head was cut off. Tagle was stabbed seven times and bled out from his wounds. The drummer, unable to run away, was also killed. 300 British soldiers armed with light flintlock rifles went into action. Normally, these fusiliers were in charge of guarding the artillery, but as the native defenders smashed through the British lines, they surged forward, recapturing the outposts hard-won by the assault and driving the Filipino spearmen back. The Filipinos who attacked Tagle were killed. None were spared. Under fire from the fusiliers, 
the Filipino soldiers rushed back to the Puerto Real. The fortress gates opened to let them back in. They dragged their wounded behind them. One of them still carried the head of Friar's assistant. As the gates closed, Spanish artillery from the Baluarte de San Andres trained their guns on the advancing musketmen and fired, cutting through the British forces. British and Philippine forces alike retreated back into cover. From their positions atop the walls, the Spanish troops saw stray dogs begin feasting on the corpses. Draper was furious about what happened to Friar. He declared, The barbarians, without respecting his body, inhumanly murdered him, mangling his body in a manner too shocking to mention. He sent an emissary to Entromuros and demanded the head of the slain officer. If not, he would behead Cerezo and the other Spaniard they had captured from the San Gertrudis, as well as all their other prisoners. The Spanish complied and even allowed the British to recover Friar's body. The corpse, now headless, had been mutilated and maimed in the most inhuman manner, as a British engineer put it. To appease them even more, Archbishop Rojo himself took a horse and rode out of the city that night to talk with the British officers inside the camp. It was a strange moment of peace one in which the two warring sides were briefly united in wrath against their dark-skinned subjects. The British, Rojo had decided, were not at fault for the death of his nephew. Instead, the Indios were the ones to blame, on both the Spanish side and the enemies. In a later review of the Tagle incident, he blamed the lack of civilized customs among the Indians, and especially the sepoys, who did not cease to continue hostilities by their constant fire. Draper came to similar conclusions. He wrote, It was evident that the Indians alone were guilty of this horrid piece of barbarity. By the word Indians, he was no doubt referring to his own sepoy soldiers, as well as the Indios who formed the bulk of Manila's defenders. Their consciences reassured and the incident resolved Rojo rode back into the city, and the two sides went back to the business of killing each other. By October, the British battery was finally completed, eight massive cannons strong, capable of firing heavy 24-pound shells. They were supported by two 18-pound cannons and seven mortars, as well as cannon fire from the Falmouth and the Elizabeth which Cornish had anchored so close to the city that their hulls scraped mud. The rains grew even worse. The Spaniards took this as more signs of God's favor, like an angel of the Lord had come to destroy the English, like the hosts of Sennacherib, as one Spanish account put it. Many British longboats that were transporting more supplies and artillery had capsized. The South Sea Castle finally arrived but was quickly run aground by the winds near the Polverista. To avoid Spanish cannon fire, the British troops constructed the battery under the cover of night, shoveling wet soil into the earthworks that would anchor their giant guns. But now at last, the great siege weapons were ready. At dawn on October 2nd, 
the battery opened fire. The cannonballs fell as thick as rain, slamming into the fortress walls and the bastion of San Andres. Meanwhile, from the bell tower of Santiago Church, soldiers fired muskets and grape shot into the ranks of the defenders. The salvo was so intense that later, more than 4,000 shells were salvaged from the city perimeter. The Spaniards kept under cover and could not fire back. Many defenders were wounded from the impact of the cannon and the flying fragments of stone, including a Spanish artilleryman who lost his arm. The fortifications, though, were better than they hoped. Only seven were killed during the bombardment. However, the British guns had done their work. By 10 in the morning, Rojo wrote, all the parapet of that part was on the ground. The walls of Manila had been breached. This podcast was written and created by Leo Mangubat for Summit Books with recording and engineering by Ayus and Anya Reyes, and production by Gene Saturnino. It is based on my series of historical articles originally published in Esquire, Philippines. For these episodes about the British invasion of Manila, I based this narrative primarily on the journals of Archbishop Manuel Rojo and Brigadier General William Draper, along with reports from Admiral Samuel Cornish and Captain William Stevenson, an engineer in the English Army. A few parts have been embellished for dramatic purposes. See the podcast description for a complete list of line-by-line sources. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on the Summit Books Facebook page and SoundCloud account. Thank you for listening in, and check back next week for a new episode of Occupy Pilipinas.